on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg. And some of the things, well, all of the things, most of the things, anything I say on this episode of the podcast (laughs) may or may not represent the views of my employer. You get to choose. Everything I say uh, probably does represent the views of my employer, but that's okay. I think they like it that way. How are you, Sally? Yeah, I'm really good. Sun is shining. We're back out of a snap five-day lockdown here in Melbourne. I'm sitting in the ACTU office with you, which is really nice to be face-to-face. I can see you've got a new pair of glasses. Rocking the new gogs. They're really, you look smarter. <laughs> that's what I said, make me look smarter. Yeah. For, um, I mean, obviously people listening can't see the glasses. So yeah, they're this really beautiful sort of sparkly purple colour <laughs> with like, it's got this like really beautiful plastic fake nose underneath and a, a fake moustache along the bottom. So it's part Elton, part Dame Edna. Mm, that was the look I was going for. Yeah, Mission yeah. accomplished. Much, much smarter. Now, Sally, it's been a, a tough week uh, for women in particular, having to listen to the story of Brittany Higgins, who is a, a worker who was working Parliament House in Canberra for a Liberal minister who a couple of years ago she claims was raped in uh, the minister's office and for a number of years was hoping to see some sort of action taken on this issue and it hasn't. But it has come to light now and it's once again shone a light on what is a culture of, um, well, sexism, of sexual uh, harassment, of uh, you know patriarchal power being exercised in the most brutal way within Parliament House. And it really does reflect more widely across the community what's going on there. But this is the lightning rod. This is what we're seeing played out in uh, the leadership of the country. And and that, in some sense, makes it all the more acute because this is the place where the highest standards should be being set. The operative word there, I think, is should be being set because uh, I think uh, if the last week is proof of anything, it's that the the standards are not being set. And so we we are going to spend this podcast episode having a chat about the horrific incident that's been alleged in Parliament House. And we're also going to talk to some listeners who've who've shared their experiences of sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. And so we do just want to share a bit of a content note for this episode. We're going to be talking about most things in the abstract, but there will be a few specific descriptions of sexual harassment and sexual assault in workplaces. Just a flag if you want to pop your headphones in, if you're around young children or if you'd rather skip to a different episode, that's totally fine with us. We're also going to pop in a bunch of numbers in the podcast notes for anybody who wants to talk to a professional or services with regard to family violence or uh, workplace harassment. A key number to remember there is 1800RESPECT, which is one 800 And before we dive into it, Francis, one more thing. Astute listeners might notice that this episode is going to run a little bit longer. And that's because we thought this is a really important issue to talk about. Yes, between Francis and I. Yes, with really esteemed guest 
Dr. Catherine Lumby and Grace Downing, who both are sort of advocates and experts in this field. But we also wanted to include the voices and the experiences of ordinary workers because this issue is rife in ordinary workplaces. It's not just Parliament House. It's not just very high-powered professions. The lived experience is quite startling, but it is bringing us into sharper focus about the issues that we have to deal with. And this is one such story. My name's Jill. I work in the aged care industry as a physio and have worked at several different companies for almost 10 years now. The aged care industry staff base is predominantly female. And so more often than not, Residents are the perpetrators of sexual harassment. Carers often suffer the brunt of uh, sexual harassment because they're more involved in the personal care and the more hands-on work, but I have also experienced it. In aged care, any form of abuse or assault or harassment is swept under the table. We're told to write it down as a behaviour in their progress notes and just say that they lack insight and have poor inhibitions. Only this morning I was asked to flick a resident's underwear and when I said no, I was asked why I was being such a sourpuss and basically told that I have to do it. I continued to decline and the resident wasn't very happy with me. I've had a resident try to touch my vagina, I've had residents grab my bottom and lots of lewd comments are made all the time. Care staff report this and more. It's not uncommon at all. I feel as though the aged care is the only industry where you have to put up with abuse. There's signs all through hospitals with the police, with the ambulance, where it says abuse will not be tolerated. We don't have this in aged care. Physical violence is also very common. But once again, the residents aren't held accountable and staff have to go home with injuries, both physical and mental, with little support. I'm not sure what the answer is in how to fix the problem because there are so many barriers. GPs are under pressure to reduce psychotrophic burden and therefore we see behaviours increase. The older generation also don't see what they're doing, that what they are doing as an issue because it was so commonplace in the 50s and 60s. All I can do is speak up and hope that the Aged Care Royal Commission will not decrease staffing levels or put in a ridiculous staff ratio, something like a 1 to 10 ratio, which I've heard bandied about. That's Jill there, who works in Aged Care, talking to us about her experience of sexual harassment in the workplace. Sally? And thank you so much to Jill for sending in that story and for sharing it so openly and so generously. I think what's really interesting in Jill's story there is Often we think about sexual harassment and sexual abuse in the workplace and it's sort of like worker to worker or within staff hierarchies and her experience of harassment at the hands of her clients or her residents in in this uh, scenario I think is it's really complex, right? Particularly when Jill talked about this collision of expectations of an older generation perhaps, so older men who may not totally see what the fuss is all about and and how these now thankfully quite archaic attitudes are no longer acceptable. And so the expectation in 2021 is that workplaces should be safe for women and that those sorts of attitudes are no longer relevant. But it seems like those archaic attitudes and sexist attitudes is not just confined to aged care homes, right? No, it's not, because if you listen to the Prime Minister's initial response to hearing about Brittany Higgins' story, he wasn't responding immediately, instinctively, individually, as a human being witnessing the pain and experience of another. He had to be brought to this position by his wife. I said yesterday in the Parliament that we had to listen to Brittany. 
I have listened to Brittany. Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. And so as I've reflected on that overnight and listened to Brittany and what she had to say, there are a couple of things here we need to address. Oh, yes, there are more than a couple. Scott Morrison there, Prime Minister, his initial response to the Brittany Higgins story. I'm gobsmacked that it had to be seen through his own eyes before he understood the reality of Brittany's experience. So he had to actually make it about himself and his own family before he could understand the power dynamics at play, the politics aside. The experience of that young woman was not something that needs to be defined by his experience of his own family. And surely we're, surely we're beyond a position where that is the way that our leaders are framing, understanding and responding to an issue around sexual assault. Surely we do not have a Prime Minister who needs his wife to break down the alleged rape of a young woman in the Defence Minister's office into these teeny tiny bite-sized portions and then be spoon-fed into his mouth. We do, spoiler alert. I watched this press conference live and sort of exploded into this incandescent fury, which I don't know if you can still see this around me, Francis. The idea that men need to be taught that rape is bad and sexual assault is wrong by their daughters, by the existence of their daughters and the process of fatherhood. Which at the very essence is, I can tell you, what cost would it come to him if it happened? Yeah. That's the only way he's going to understand it is if he can if he can shape it in his own world, if it happened to his daughters, then he can understand the pain. Yeah. Otherwise, not my problem. It is so deeply offensive. It's so telling. It is so damning to sort of publicly announce and brag about that the fact that Morrison couldn't understand what it might be like for Brittany Higgins or for any other woman until he thought about it, about how it would make him feel if it was his daughter's, is so damning. And the thing I'm most furious about is it is so common, this perspective as a father, I wouldn't want this happening to women. You know, I've got a sister, I've got a wife, I've got a mother. The consideration of women as only existing in relation to men, only having worth, only having humanity because men can imagine us as being directly related to them is so damning, it is so offensive and it is so prevalent. We've got a lot of work to do, people. We've got a lot of work to do. Well, let's get stuck into doing some of it because after this, Catherine Lumby's going to join us, Professor Catherine Lumby from Macquarie University who's done an enormous amount of work in shifting cultures when it comes to the issue of sexual harassment within institutions, big and small. And we're also going to speak with Grace Dowling from Hospo Voice who is an activist who's working on the ground in bars and pubs, working directly with uh, people in the hospitality industry to turn back the tide of sexual harassment that workers in those industries face as well. That's all coming up here on The Job. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd.
It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach and Sally Rugg with you. And as we discussed in the intro, Sally, it has been another traumatic week for women who work in Parliament, but more generally, the issue of sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace is one that hasn't been addressed in the way that it should, and that conversation needs to continue to be had, but change needs to be had as well. I thought before we jump into hearing from Professor Catherine Lumby on this issue, we should hear from... Uh, one of the people that reached out to us to tell us their story uh, about a real-life experience of being harassed at work, and, and this is Lauren's story about having to deal with that type of behaviour. My name's Lauren and I work in governance and policy. Over the eight or so years I've been in this field, I've worked with all levels of government, including directly in local government in Perth, Western Australia. The environments I work in are male-dominated and tend to be politicised either by the nature of the organisation such as local government or the nature of my role. I can spend time lobbying and working on policy with various government departments. In these environments, sexual harassment is normalised. Bad behaviour is passed off as horseplay or boys being boys or, you know, lighten up, sweetheart. Or worse, bad behaviours never even aired because the victim's too scared or too ashamed to come forward. To speak out in that sort of environment is to risk your professional standing. Uh, when I was working in local government in Perth, the leadership I reported to was almost all male. I was required to review policies that these men had approved and they didn't like that. One manager in particular didn't like that I was there to, in his eyes, critique his work. He became increasingly hostile toward me. He'd make jokes that I was single, so my ovaries were collecting dust. And if I wasn't chatty with him, he'd ask me what time of the month it was. Nobody ever called this out. Uh, At the Christmas party, we were on a boat and he was standing next to me. There were no seats and it got rocky. So I crouched down to steady myself. He turned to me and loudly said, how come I like you so much more when you're kneeling in front of me? To which another male manager responded, well, that's a better use for her big mouth than yapping on about policy. I left that job shortly after. It just wasn't tenable to work with these people anymore. I reported it to the HR team and they never followed up. I had to proactively chase it even after I'd left. About 12 months later, they appointed an external lawyer to investigate. When he interviewed me, he told me these things happen in context. It was the Christmas party, so spirits were high. I'm not really sure to this day what was uh, meant directly by that, but I've got a pretty fair idea that he was just excusing it. Uh, Not much else happened. I eventually received an email to say the manager had been issued a warning but was continuing in his role. What I felt most was despair. Uh, that the patterns of behaviour would continue because they'd just been excused away. Uh, The people involved couldn't see what was wrong with the situation or their behaviour and no one was there to call them out on it. It took a pretty heavy emotional toll to have to be the one to do that work. 
And that was uh, Lauren very generously sharing her experience from working in governance. And her experience, no doubt, repeated over and over again in workplaces all over the country in different sectors and highlighted by events in Parliament in recent times. Professor Catherine Lumby does the hard work in trying to shift the culture uh, around sexual assault and and behaviour in the workplace and beyond uh, from Macquarie University in New South Wales. And she's been good enough to be part of On The Job today. Hi, Catherine. How are you going? Hey guys, I just like had tears in my eyes listening to that, but I'm so familiar with those stories, right? And what what a fabulous, obviously, you know, young woman, and we've been there, right? You probably have been too, I have. I worked in the press gallery in Parliament House, and I worked in the media, I was a journalist for 20 years. (laughs) Her story is so familiar to me, and I think women, and that's happened to some men, you know, let's be honest, because... With feminism, we've got to bring men on the journey. Otherwise, like, what's the point? But, you know, that little bit she said about being on that boat, you know, that thing where you're reduced to your sexual currency when you're a smart woman who wants to make change. Like, that says it all. And also to have that happen, you know, not by strangers at a bar or, um, Mm. you know, anonymous people online, but in your workplace by your superiors, it's... A humiliating story. You want yeah, to feel bet. shocked, but we don't feel shocked because it's all too common. You mentioned about your time working in the press gallery in Parliament House. That was quite a, a while ago now. And looking at the stories that have come huh. out across 2020 and indeed the latest incident with Brittany Higgins alleging that she was raped in the Defence Minister's office. Can you see much progress that has been made within the building? Well, I think it's interesting that we're talking still about Parliament or we, I mean, like Dyson Hayden, who was like the head of our High Court. Now, again, allegations, I will say uh, in a general sense, I don't think people make these things up lightly. But of course, sometimes people are falsely accused. So we need to be careful about that. But I can tell you this, from a working class background, I landed at Sydney University and did a black letter law degree at Sydney University. And it was so confronting because I was like with all these privileged people and many of them from like, you know, very wealthy backgrounds and their parents were judges or their fathers, I should say, were judges or barristers or whatever have you. I remember it must have been fourth year law. We were doing criminal law, I think. And some of those privileged boys gave the lecturer in the semester we were doing criminal law and we were studying sexual assault, a blow-up plastic sex doll to hold. And I sat in that lecture theatre thinking, hmm, there's like 300 students here or 250 students here, probably 5 to 10% have been raped. And that includes me and many other people I know, largely women but some men I've met. And it's a culture. And so when you're talking about Parliament House, you're talking about media or you're talking about any of these organisations, they are male-dominated, but they're dominated by particular kinds of men. Mm. And one of my closest friends, Larissa Barrent, who's an Indigenous woman, who's a professor of law at UTS, she wrote a report about racism in Collingwood and Eddie Maguire's resigned. And I saw him do his resignation speech And what he said is like what a lot of men say when they're accused of sexual harassment or assault or that that stuff. Oh, I now realise I was wrong. I apologise. The HR department, there was a code of silence 
cover up. They often do. And that's a problem because it just keeps happening. Mm-hmm. Can I ask Catherine uh, about that culture that doesn't shift? Because you've worked in organisations that have been either deeply patriarchal or hyper-masculine and worked to try to change cultures. So you've got a clear understanding of what you're trying to achieve and how you want to achieve it. So can you give us a bit of a roadmap in how that might be done? Well, it's a very, very long process, Francis, as you know. It's like we live in a highly gendered society. Like the first two things we notice about people is race and gender. Okay, we're all fully human, we're people. So shifting that is a very, very long historical process. So there's that, you know, in a structural sense. But within organisations, the first thing you do is you go in and you take the temperature of the culture and you do that by doing anonymous quant and qual stuff so you can say, look, this is where your culture's at, this is where your organisation's at when it comes to understanding gender and why sexual harassment is not okay and why people come from different places and why we should all be able to bring our full selves to work and not feel that we're constrained by our gender or our, our cultural background. So when you know what people in those sits tell you, Then you can say, well, let me review the policy and protocol. But also then you say, right, using that intel, let's design education programs that don't make people feel shamed or blamed or told they're doing the wrong things or are just tick the box exercises. Let's involve people in conversations about hypotheticals, about scenarios where there aren't always black and white answers. Can I ask you, Catherine, about this issue in relation to power structures? Because it seems to me when I hear Lauren's story that, yes, it is sexual assault in a sense or sexual harassment, but it's an exercise of power. Those men are putting her in her place and are Absolutely. using uh, using sex uh, sexualized language to humiliate her so that she knows where she stands in the pecking order. Now, most of the businesses, the big businesses in this country are still built on a patriarchal foundation. They still have mostly men in powers of position. We know that there is no gender equity yet established at boardroom level. It is still an economy built for men, made by men. So if we dig right down to this, is that what we're dealing with here? Is that this is, at its heart, an exercise of power to keep women in their place? I'm just laughing because you said patriarchy in your voice which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Francis is a great feminist ally. I know he is. I think he's fabulous, by the way. Thank you, Catherine. He's got lovely glasses on today. (laughs) No, but I I mean that. What I mean is how do I approach men? It's not because I'm like tiptoeing and being girly. I just go, what does it take? Because Francis just named it. It's structural. It's about power. Rape is about power. Mm. It's not because men can't control their penises. I know plenty of men who can walk past attractive women and not rape them. <laughs> like, right? And you know what? Well yeah. done to those men. I think let's let's make sure they're yeah, gold well, well stars done. in the mail. You know, I, I will hand an order of Australia to any man who says patriarchy if I was in you know in control of that. But look, so if we really go to the heart of it intellectually and what you know, the three of us know, and some and many of you listen well, is it structural? It is about power. I mean, so much of the world is about that. There are so many things we need to change. But in order to make change, I think 
by confronting people with an intellectual academic argument about structure and power, I don't think you get very far. With women, like, are you comfortable working with them in the first place? If you're not, tell me why. I've had men, old, much older men, when I've asked them, when I've been on boards and stuff, say, you know, I feel like it's like my mum's in the room. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, like, there's some sort of yeah. deeper issues at play, I think, there. If- well, right. We need Dr. Freud. But I said, okay, but I didn't say, you know, that's really sexist. I said, that's interesting. Tell me how that feels for you. What do you mean by that? And when I drilled down and we went and had a glass of wine together, he said, well, I don't want to swear in front of you, right? He started naming things that he felt that in front of a woman, because he'd been like raised in his upper middle class background, he felt women couldn't deal with. Like to me, going back to the really basic question, I think if we want to change cultures, firstly, we need to know what's going on in the culture. But secondly, when we do training education staff, we need to listen before we speak and really allow people to say things without shame or blame mm. and say, you know, I feel this way. I know I'm not supposed to, but I do. Catherine, it sounds like you have an extraordinary amount of patience, um, far more patience than I would. I, I don't know how I would go with a, a guy in the boardroom telling me that I remind him of his mother or, and then sort of you know, sort of comforting him as he, some might say coddling, but I, I'm, I think your work sounds very patient and very generous. But I also wonder, do you think it should be on women to do this kind of work? Like what role can feminist allies like Francis and the other great men listening, like what role do they have in this? Yeah, issue? what a great question. And you know, this is the thing, that's why I have great confidence. I am a bit Pollyanna. I know so many great men, right, Francis among them who are allies. And I think one of the things is feminism, and I use that badge loud and proud, and I know men who say they are too. Like my friend David Leather, who you know, wrote a great book recently about men and women and the whole shebang, they are allies. And I want them to feel embraced. And I want men to be able to go, I'm a feminist. Because really feminism, to me, at its heart, is about gender equality. And that means but your gender should not matter so much. And as a man, you should be able to like show your emotional side to, if you have kids, love them, to embrace your sexuality and not be shamed or blamed for it. It's just the same thing women want, but also to be able to do your work without being harassed. You know? It's really not rocket science. And I am a feminist and I agree with all that you've said. And Catherine, thank you for talking to us. And let's hope that at least this time there is some accountability and that yeah. there is a, a, a process put in place for all those people that work in that, that high-intensity environment and everywhere. There can be a model for everyone on how to deal with these situations and that there are actual consequences for behaviour because that also is an agent of change. Good to talk to you, Catherine. It's a privilege. Professor Catherine Lumber there from Macquarie <laughs> University with us here on The Job. With Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, this is On The Job. You're On The Job, the podcast about making your working life better. Francis Leach and Sally Rugg with you. We're talking about the issue of sexual harassment uh, in the workplace. And if you're working in hospitality, Sally, if you've ever done a job in a cafe or a pub or somewhere like that, it's often an environment where this sort of behaviour is rife. People are drinking, people are behaving raucously, and some people feel that they've got an opportunity to take liberties. And sort of anecdotally from 
speaking to my friends who work in hospitality and from my time in hospitality as well, yeah, it's an issue within um, sort of staff and leadership structures, but it's also a huge issue coming from customers and clientele. We have another listener story, Jessica, who's sent in her story about working in hospitality over a long period of time. Again, another little um, content note on this story for sexual harassment. Do listen in and then we're going to have a chat afterwards to Grace from Hospo Voice, who is an activist working to make the hospitality workplaces better and safer and less exploitative for women like Jess. My name's Jessica. I worked in the hospitality industry for about seven years in Perth, um, in Western Australia. I worked in a number of different bars, nightclubs and pubs. And what I noticed was that in all of those establishments, there was a general culture of sexualizing female bar staff and sort of an unspoken rule that it, that was par for the course and it, it came with the job. And we would routinely experience sexual harassment, abuse, and in some cases, sexual assault from customers generally. And we were really encouraged to laugh it off or in in some cases even to play up to it. There was a sense that being eye candy was part of what we were hired for. And there was no real sort of training around how to manage that, who we could speak to, what to do if something happened to us. And it wasn't until much later that I've really been able to reflect on how unsafe that environment was for the women working there. You know, the kind of experiences that we would have ranged from verbal abuse, general lewd comments, being harassed for our phone numbers, having customers wait outside of our venues for us, after we've finished work or on our breaks, all the way up to actually being physically groped by customers when we were collecting glasses. At no point, I guess, did any of us really think to question that because of the culture that had really been built up around being uh, us being seen as sexual objects in the workplace. I think that the sexual harassment and assault of women in hospitality is rife and does need addressing. And I think that really has to come from the top down. I think it's about management and workplaces really setting the tone for what kind of behaviour is unacceptable in an establishment and also providing training for staff around who they can go to if they experience abusive behaviour, what to do if they witness abusive behaviour of another staff member, and also having a culture of really being able to go to management about it and, and not feel that your, that your job is in jeopardy for doing so. At the time that I was working in hospitality, and this isn't that long ago, it's in the last 10 years, you know, all of the women that were working alongside me were mostly in their late teens and early 20s and really didn't have the tools 
most of the time to know how to manage that kind of treatment, especially in an environment where it's so normalised. So my hope would be that women um, coming through that industry now really feel that they're supported by their workplace in having a zero-tolerance attitude towards sexual harassment and assault. That's just there. Uh, hospitality worker from uh, West Australia from Perth uh, sharing her experience in the industry where sexual assault uh, is something that people working in hospo face on a nightly, daily basis when they go to work, which is an entirely unacceptable situation, Sally Rugg. And we're joined by Grace Dowling now, who is a volunteer leader with Hospo Voice, the union, and the Respect the Rules campaign, uh, which is all about changing and shifting that culture. And she's with us here on the job. Hi, Grace. How are you going? Hi. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. How did you, that story that you heard there from Jess must be fairly familiar from, from <laughs> the people that you are in contact with who are in the union, who come to the union with their stories about what happened to them at work. That's right. I mean, un- unfortunately, uh, in listening to Jessica speak, uh, it's it's devastating. And every time I, I hear these conversations and hear these stories, I have a really, um, really visceral kind of full body response because not only uh, from a union point of view and in union spaces are we having these, you know, almost parallel, almost identical conversations all the time, but I'm also a bartender. You know, I've been in the industry for almost 11 years and had these conversations with every coworker I've ever had. Um, we see it every day, exactly like you said, and and it's devastating. No matter how common it is, it's it's heartbreaking. I think um, what really jumped out at me during Jess's story was how she really tapped into this idea that women, particularly working in bars and nightclubs, there's almost this like implicit expectation to not only serve drinks, clean the tables you know, run run the services operation, but to also, yeah, be, be eye candy, go beyond the sort of like friendly service and be sort of more of a flirty service, which I, I should just mention like that is a job, like being a hostess is a job and that's fine. But if you are employed as a bartender, like that's not actually what it says on the official box. Yeah, I wondered if you if you've come up against, you know, confronting that, expectation from uh, hiring managers and companies in the past and how that's gone. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the important word that you used just then, Sally, was the implicit kind of expectation. So, you know, there is hospitality and there is being an agreeable, friendly uh, host worker. And then there is that implicit continuation of that wherein you start to see these expectations of, you know, sexual kind of nature. So in terms of confronting that, I think it really comes down to what what I think Jessica tapped on is 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 disrupting this normalization. So, just raising these conversations and the campaign's been excellent in in being that sort of agitative <laughs> tool. I don't know if that's a word, but um, being that kind of uh, vehicle into those conversations where we kind of say yes, okay, there's been this implication, there's been this connotation here that this role um, will for female staff or for any staff have this, you know, underlying or underbelly <laughs> of. Um, you know, this inappropriate uh, sort of behaviour and, and conduct, but just raising those raising those points instead of saying sort of saying like, no, just because it's everywhere, just because it's common, just because it's rife doesn't mean it's fine. And, you know, the incredible thing is that we have seen women and workers and allies stepping up in the last, you know, especially in the last five years, especially with the advent of, of Hospo Voice and, and our union and, and our campaign. 
it's a bit of an enough is enough, mm. you know, drawing that line. And, and fortunately, uh, something that keeps me going is, is seeing women have those conversations every single day with each other in, and with their employers and with their, like you said, hiring managers and recruitment. So tell us about the campaign, Grace. Respect is the rule. What, what's at the heart of it and how does it operate? Yeah, good question. So respect is a rule. Uh, it actually was kind of the cornerstone of Hospo Voice when it came to light. Respect is the rule almost started before Hospo Voice. Can I jump did. in? Can you give a little like a quick summary of Hospo Voice, because I remember yeah. when the, the union emerged. Was it, did you say five years ago? Yeah, 2015-16, right? yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, again, Respect as a Rule kind of started under United Workers Union. So, oh, sorry, it would have been United Voice at the time before the, the merger. So these incredible workers, Hospo workers, started getting together and saying, again, uh, we've recognised that, that harassment is such a horrendous issue in the industry. We took a big survey at the time, surveyed 300 workers, and the results came back uh, just being this really, really horrendous uh, number. We had 89% of women in the industry say that they'd experienced sexual harassment. 89 89% of respondents, that's right. Um, 90% of the respondents were women, uh, important to note, but then we also had 50% of respondents say that they didn't think employers were taking sexual harassment seriously. So I think hospitality is, has been itching for a union and for, for this kind of mobilisation for a long time. But I think those results uh, from that survey and, and those conversations, those really early conversations, was certainly a catalyst for, for forming the union. So, yeah, that's that's the origin story. Started then, hospital workers started getting together. I personally wasn't involved until a couple of years later um, when I became aware of the, the union and the campaign uh, in a workplace, um, yeah, when I was working in a pub. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's Australia's first digital only digital online union, which is awesome because it means we have reach and accessibility and and can really exercise these exciting new online tools and, and resources. So it's it's fantastic. But I think a lot of people are really familiar with Hospital Voice via our wage theft campaigns, um, taking down the the baddies, the George Columbaruses of the world, and um, being in the news, uh, making heaps of noise, getting our megaphones out there and getting real angry. <laughs> so we do that and, and respect as a rule is just another one of those campaigns that you know, we'll, we'll keep it going forever. It's, it's really, really important to us. There's, the work's never going to be done. So, yeah, it, it kind of runs under Hospital Voice uh, still to this day. And, and the, at the core of it, what, what yes, are the messages sorry. and what are the, what are the dynamics that you use to try to shift the culture in workplaces mm-hmm. to make it safer for women working in Hospo? Sure. So the, the brief summary, the introduction of the Respect as a Rule campaign is, is asking employers, asking workplaces to pledge zero tolerance to sexual harassment. So that's, that's at the core. So we have a physical pledge, A2 pledge that we say, you know, here's what you are signing up for. And we get the, it's not, you know, contractually binding, it's symbolic in that way, but get the boss and to sit down and, and sign it and put their name to it and really put a date on it, you know? Yeah, I've seen that pledge displayed in pubs around Melbourne. And I've also, perhaps this is part of the campaign as well, I think um, most women who's, who've been to bars, restaurants, clubs recently might notice on the back of toilet doors more and more we see this sign. I don't know if you have this in the men's, Francis, but it venues um, going out of their way to say, we are a safe venue. If you are feeling uncomfortable, if anyone is harassing you or um, making you feel unsafe, come to the bar staff. There's some venues have, uh, you know, suggest covert ways of doing it. They say, come and tell the bar staff because we you know, are trained in this and we don't accept this in the venue. Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly kind of conversations that we want to be encouraging and raising and, and be it through respect as a rule or otherwise, you know, um, those are the the venues who you see and, and often in my experience and from speaking to members, when you see those signs in a venue, when you see those that messaging around the place, it's usually come from the workers. 
it's come from the the female bartenders, for example, and and people like myself and people like my my union colleagues who have had that experience themselves, be it behind the bar or on the other side, um, who have said, you know, enough is enough. We're going to make this a space uh, wherein everyone can feel safe and comfortable. So that's another part of the campaign. Are you seeing some successes with it? Are you seeing some changes in the culture of venues and the way people behave? Yeah, I think uh, we are. And, you know, those signs are a great example, just having being a part of that that general agitation and as, as a wider cultural kind of phenomenon. So we've been definitely noticing a lot more of, of that where – Again, what I think Jessica raised before is about having a clear and concise course of action. If you see something, if you hear something, if you personally experience something, where do you go? Who do you tell? And so something like those signs, something like uh, respect as a rule, it's all about making that explicit and really making everyone understand exactly you know, what to do rather than kind of putting the onus on a victim to, to kind of sort it out themselves, I suppose. So part of the campaign when we pledge up a venue, we like to think that those, like the volunteers that work on the campaign, we talk about sustainability and we talk about accountability. So signing the pledge is one thing, but we're going to hold you to it. We're going to be calling you. We're going to be visiting you. Are you actually having these conversations in your workplace? We're going to be speaking to your workers. Are your workers actually feeling safe and protected and empowered? And we tend to, we liaise with the workers, not so much the bosses as well to encourage that. Um, and then in terms of sustainability, Again, it's like, is this going to be something that you can keep up? We've got a really high turnover in this industry. Is Are we going to be able to watch your venue sustain this throughout, you know, that turnover and, and that kind of fluctuation? So there's that. But um, again, the pledge says, you know, do you commit to zero tolerance? Yep. But it also says, are you going to raise this in, in paid training with your staff? You know, are you going to actually put steps in place to make this, again, that, that kind of explicit, um, strong course of action that, that allows them to, you know, put their money where their mouth is, I suppose. Oh, I love this sort of grassroots organising <laughs> where it's like, we will knock down your door and, and you know, come face to face with you. That's It's so great. And, and what about sort of more sort of structural reform from like top-down enforcement from like a commission or a, a, an overarching body? Like does, does HOSPO Voice have recommendations or campaigns around that sort of oversight? I think the short answer to that is soon. Yeah, <laughs> so, great. Um, you know, everything that we do is, is is member driven, right? So we have these these big meetings and we have these especially over COVID, you know, we're on Zoom a lot. <laughs> Spent a lot of time on Zoom with and now because we've gone national the union, it was all over Australia, these workers coming together to say again, enough is enough, let's talk about how to handle harassment. So some things came forward. Yep, we keep running respect as a rule. Yep, we can't keep doing that kind of grass, grassroots mobilisation. We're kind of raising that like uh, solidarity and, and consciousness. But um, in terms of top down, some things that came up uh, that that our members really want to see happen and that we want to start agitating around are uh, incorporating, again, that kind of course of action uh, stuff into like RSA um, or equivalent kind of training. So you, you've got your RSA, you can legally, legally serve alcohol, but also unfortunately, like you said before, Francis, alcohol alcohol-infused situations can can be volatile and can be whatever it may be, sexually inappropriate or, or violent. Um, so let's talk about it in that same breath as saying, you know, this is a standard drink this is what to do if you experience, you know, unfortunately, in touch word, experience sexual harassment. So that would be great. And then another one, and I wanted to raise this before, is incorporating uh, harassment and bullying training or awareness into chef apprenticeships through TAFEs, like, you know, your William Anglis, that kind of thing. Because, yeah, of course, women, you know, disproportionately experience this harassment in the industry, but something that comes forward a lot, uh, like anecdotally, is... Uh, young chef apprentices who are often men, often migrant workers, 
uh, experiencing at the hands of the head chef. So this kind of behind the scenes, back of house, really, really insidious, in, almost institutionalized harassment. So uh, it doesn't get spoken about nearly as much. Uh, again, it's behind the scenes, but it's 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 a problem that time and time again we have uh, young young men, young male workers, or any workers uh, coming forward and, and talking about it. So incorporating those conversations as well, because also chefing apprentices, they're 15, 16, 17. So it's, Such, it's that same exploitation of power. That's absolutely it. Yeah, hazing as a form of bastardisation and humiliation as a way of asserting absolutely. power structures. Grace, if people want to find out more about HOSPO voice and also respect is the rule, because we'll have people listening to this who want to get in contact with with the uh, union and the great work you're doing, what should they do? They should. <laughs> Look us up. So go onto our website, type in Hospo Voice on Google, we'll be the first one. Um, jump on there. The Respect is a Rule campaign will be featured on our website as well, so you can kind of have it all in one place. Um, we've got Hospo News, so you can get a little bit of a taste of what we're about otherwise as well, read the articles. Again, we're a digital union. We've got countless online spaces. So join our Facebook group and, and come say hi. They're awesome. Kicking ass for the serving class. That's what they're doing, Hospo. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> it. <laughs> voice. Thank you, Grace Dowling. Thank you for coming in and, and sharing with us uh, your insights and also telling everyone about the great work that Hospital Voice is doing in this space. And it's been a big on the job, Sally. Thank you for being here today. I know you've got to, you've got to go back and do home classes again today. The learning never stops for a the five-year-old. Never st- Except when the five-year-old goes, I don't want to be grown up. Or, I want to go back to playing with <laughs> rocks in ponds. And do they play with? Do kids still play with like? But they make mud pies and they don't play with clay and stuff anymore. Kinder. It's very well. It's very difficult to get an answer out of um, my kid when she finishes school. It's sort of like, how was your day? Yeah. Fine, but her uniform isn't covered in mud. So I think I think there's less mud pies. I say bring back the mud pie. Good on you, Sally. We'll catch you next week. And uh, also uh, remind people where they can find you on uh, all the uh, different socials. So uh, if you search my name, it's Sally Rugg. On a platform, you'll find me. And uh, don't forget to give us a rating on your uh, podcast platform. Tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, Shout out to the world. And uh, we'll be back with another edition of On The Job again next week. Bye-bye.